Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. All right, well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13 is where we will start off today. It's good to be back with everyone. It's been a couple weeks since I have preached, and so I always get a little antsy, and I'm happy to be back. Um, Matthew 13 is where we'll start this morning as we start a new sermon series. Politics can get kind of crazy, and people's emotions get inflamed during political debates. And, and we have politicians that will kind of hurl insults at each other. And sometimes you're like, wait a minute, are you in the Senate or are you in like the third grade recess, right? Or at like a lunch table at a school. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it makes me feel a little bit better, not much, but a little bit to read stories about how that's kind of always been the case, right? Like maybe it's a little different now. Maybe it's more or less worse. I mean, who can measure these kind of things? But Really, as far back as you go, you can find politicians acting kind of crazy. And, and one of my favorite stories um, comes from the 1920s, and it was during a Senate session. And there's this heated debate going on. I'm not sure what exactly they were arguing about. And at one point, one senator said to another one, You, sir, go to hell. And the other senator appealed to the vice president, Coolidge, who was presiding over the Senate session. And he goes, uh, Vice President, is, is he allowed to say that? I mean, is that appropriate? Can you say that to a distinguished senator? And Coolidge, very famously, was kind of like flipping through a, a book, and he looked up, and he goes, I've checked the rules manual. I don't think you have to go. I don't think this is uh, proper rules for the Senate. Um, and this is kind of a, a microcosm of the state that many Christians find themselves in when it comes to the topic of hell. Um, we find ourselves... Um, questioning things we've heard about hell, questioning things we've been told about hell, questioning ways that hell has shaped our attitudes and has shaped our spiritual formation, where we divide people up into us versus them, and, and we get into these attitudes where we're telling people where they should or will go. And then we find ourselves going back and checking the rules manual. We find ourselves going back and be like, okay, what, is, what does the scripture really say? What have Christians really said throughout history? There's been a large movement in the past few decades um, where people have really started in kind of our tradition to rethink the doctrine of hell. What is it that happens to people who go to a place of punishment, who experience a, a, a judgment described in various ways throughout scripture? We were going through a series earlier this summer called Christianese where we were talking about different important words and topics in the Christian faith that sometimes get misunderstood and distorted and misused. And as we went through that, the number one thing that I kept hearing and, and being requested to speak about was hell. Can you talk about hell? Can you talk about hell? Can you talk about hell? And my kind of answer was, sure, but it's going to take more than a week. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated, complex subject. And so if we're going to do it, I want to kind of take some time and, and ease us into this. Um, also, just really wanted to have a lot of time to really, you know, get my, my hell puns down, because there's a lot of good ones here um, when you're going to preach about hell. I mean, just the, the takes get hot and hot, and you can um, just, just play on a lot of different fun stuff. Um, 
And so we're, we're starting a sermon series this morning. It's going to be four weeks. It's called Catching Hell. The subtitle here is A Burning Question About a Loving God. Um, this is a question a lot of us have asked ourselves. This is a question we have talked about with one another. We've done Elephant in the Rooms on this topic uh, before. And so like many things at Sweetwater Christian Church, um, if you're newer to us, um, we are okay with complex subjects. We're okay with things if there's not a, one clear, definitive answer. In fact, except for a few things, we're not super dogmatic about a lot of things. Like, this is what the church believes, and this is what you have to believe, or we don't think you're a very good Christian, or we don't think you should be a part of this church. It's okay to disagree. We'll have people who disagree about this topic. It's okay to disagree with me about things. This is, this is one of those topics where we say, it's okay to have discussion here, because this is confusing. And yet, hell is important. When we talk about hell, we're usually talking about more than hell. When we talk about hell, we're usually talking about the character of God at some level. What is God like? What is God willing to do? What does God want to do? What are the limits, if any, of, on God's mercy? What are the requirements, if any, of God's justice? When we talk about hell, we're, we're often talking about the nature of judgment itself. Is judgment punishment? Is it retributive? Is it vengeance? Is it you get what you deserve? Or is judgment rehabilitative? Is it, is it restorative? Does it change and reform somebody? Does it bring them to a, a healthier, more full life? When we talk about hell, we're often talking about humanity the nature of our choices, the limits of our freedom, the things we can and can't choose and how we might or might not be able to choose those things. And so um, we'll spend four weeks today. I just want to kind of intro us into the topic. Uh, and then next week, we will look at what Jesus says about hell. Jesus talks about hell a lot. The week after that, we'll look at the book of Revelation and see what Revelation and, and this idea of new creation tells us about hell. Um, and then the fourth week, we will wrap things up. Um, but we need to be prepared to be challenged, be prepared to be stretched, be prepared to have questions, um, and be prepared to not just be given um, small, simple answers. But Matthew 13 is where we'll start, because Matthew 13 is one of the passages I most remember from my past growing up being taught about hell. So we'll, we'll pick it up. It's a parable of the weeds being explained. Jesus has told this parable. And then in verse 36 in Matthew 13, we have this passage. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice the descriptions here given. We're, we're not really going to get into the parable itself of the weeds, but, but notice the description he gives for the punishment reserved for those who are causing sin, those who are the breakers of the law. 
there's three big things that kind of stand out here in this passage. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. And for many of us, we'll be very familiar with this idea that flames tend to go along with Christian descriptions of hell. It's this very fiery kind of punishment. Some of us were at a, a camp or a, a, some kind of a presentation where, where this has been used to kind of illustrate how horrible of a destination of a fate hell might be. If you've ever burned your finger or your hand, or, or I've heard of um, campers who were given a presentation with this campfire in front of them and said, hey, uh, can I put your hand in this fire for five minutes? And after these five minutes, let's see how you're doing. And then I'll ask you, how would you think about an hour of this or, or a day of this or we put your whole body in this, right? I mean, it gets really horrific really fast. It's a, it's a very bad kind of place to be, this fiery furnace. And then you get the experience of people in there. They're weeping. They're crying. They're, they're gnashing their teeth. They're in this kind of agonizing pain. And this is what we might call the traditional view of hell. Now, in a minute, I'll kind of put an asterisk to that because there's a lot of different nuances even to the traditional view of hell. But more or less, it goes something like this. Hell is a bad place where the wicked, the people who don't believe in Jesus are punished. And it tends to be described with this type of imagery and language, fire and suffering. It is a, a negative destination. It's not somewhere you want to be. And for many Christians, it has been elevated to a central place in Christianity. For many of us, we've heard gospel presentations that started with hell, where hell actually sets up the whole conversation. Hell, in this way, actually kind of gets to define Jesus, define what salvation is, define what the solution is, because the problem has been set out. It's, it's hell. It's this fiery, awful destination for human beings where they might end up if they don't do the right things here and now. And as a fear tactic, it, it's a pretty good one. It's pretty successful in getting kids and people to convert and say a prayer and, and, and filling out the proper paperwork for the fire insurance. Now, as a spiritual formation tactic, it doesn't seem to be so great of one. It doesn't really seem to draw people towards loving God or having desire to follow Christ and invest in his kingdom. But yet, for so many, hell is, is kind of the, the central, um, central part of, of our faith. It, it becomes much more important, I think, than it was ever really meant to be. I'll, I'll never forget sitting across from a kid who uh, had been coming to me for some counseling and uh, some kind of spiritual things. And he had been being abused, so he'd been going through this, this rough situation. I'll never forget, he sat across from me, and, and you could tell he was really troubled, and we had a couple of sessions, his mom was there, and we're trying to figure out really kind of, you knew he wasn't saying what he wanted to say, right? And then eventually it comes out, and over tears, choking back his, his, his vocal cords, he, he says, am I going to go to hell? Because he had experienced some really bad things. And because when you're a child, it gets really confusing when things like that happen, right? I mean, the, the line between being a victim and participating in it, all that gets blurred and, and you get that guilt and pressure put on you. And, and, and really the one thing that was keeping him up at night, the, the one thing that had really weighed him down, right, was this is where I am going to be going. This is what I hear everybody talking about. People who've done these type of things, people who've been involved in these type of things, they've got a flamey place 
coming for them. They've got weeping and, and gnashing coming for them. It's a very pastorally sensitive issue. Many of us, if not all of us, probably have people that we've loved very deeply who have passed away not being believers. And the psychological weight of believing that this is their fate, this is their destiny, is a heavy one. And many of us, if not all of us, have loved ones, family members, friends, who right now are not believers. And the psychological weight of believing that if they were to pass away, if something were to happen to them and this would be their fate, it's, it's a heavy one. Now, I want to do two things as we just dip our toes into this problem, into these questions, into this idea about hell and judgment and the afterlife and the fate of those who don't believe in Jesus. The first thing I want to do is I want to say that um, and, and kind of sketch for you this idea that this is not our only option as Christians. This is not the only options Christians have for believing about hell. And then Secondly, I want to, to kind of put hell in its context and, and kind of say this is also not the center of our faith. This is also not the most important thing there is to being a Christian. There's something much more important. There's something that takes up much more space in our faith as Christians than hell. Now, if you were to survey people, just in this room, if we went around and said, describe hell, what is hell? What is hell like? What's the nature of hell? If we've got 40 people in this room, you'd probably get... Uh, approximately 40 different kind of answers, right? And, and there would be a lot of similarity probably. You could probably group them into similar answers. But I can guarantee you there would also be some pretty big differences. If you were to survey church history and go looking for what some of the, the, the biggest, most famous theologians and pastors have said about hell, what you'd find is there's a ton of differences. There's a whole lot of differences, there are a whole lot of different ways of explaining it, of understanding it. And I've done a lot of reading on the subject. I've still not, not yet come across um, someone who has found what I think is a seemingly obvious truth, that hell is like a never-ending political argument with your in-laws, right? I mean, I think that is very clearly, if we're going to really get a specific grasp on hell, it has to be something like that. The, the, the reason why you find so many different descriptions of hell is because the Bible has different descriptions of hell. The Bible does not seem to speak in one voice when it comes to talking about hell. In fact, this English word hell, we're not even that sure how helpful that is for us as Christians. You're aware that, that God did not write a book that he called the Bible and used the English word hell to describe what happens to people who don't follow Jesus. This is a translation thing. And, and so the King James Version has, has left gifts for us in many different ways, has left legacies to us. One of these legacies is hell. Because what the King James Version did was it took a group of different words in Hebrew and Greek, and it kind of went, huh, who cares about differences? We'll just use the word hell for all of them. And then as time passed, right, you, you have different pop culture, other cultural references, Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, weighs heavily on many of our kind of imaginations when we think about hell and the afterlife. All these things kind of combine together to, to make us question, when we use that English word hell, or we're using it in the same way that we see in Scripture. So you have different terms in Scripture that sometimes 
and sometimes don't get translated as, as hell. There, your three primary ones are this. You have Sheol. This is a, a Hebrew word, Sheol. And, and it seems to primarily reference the grave. So in our newer English translations, in the NIV and the ESV, which we're reading, you're going to see it translated as the grave. It's where dead people go. And in, in the Old Testament, there's really not, in a lot of places, any theology of an afterlife. Death is just kind of death, and you go there because you're dead. It's a, it's a grave. But at other times, there does seem to be something kind of happening there. And, and Sheol is just where everyone goes. There's no distinctions in, in Sheol, okay? The righteous go there. The wicked go there. If there's something coming for them, it's some sort of a waiting place. Now, when the earliest Christians who spoke and wrote in Greek, when they translated the Old Testament and they came across this Hebrew word Sheol, they used a Greek word, Hades. You've probably heard of this word, Hades. If you know anything about Greek mythology, if you're into that, there was a whole god named Hades. Hades was the place where, where again, dead people went. Hades, the god, was the ruler of the underworld. And so anywhere in the New Testament, we quote an Old Testament passage that has Sheol. We quote it with Hades. And then a couple other places use the word Hades. Jesus will use the word Hades. There's a couple places in the New Testament elsewhere that use the word Hades. And then, and then the third big term that gets translated into hell for us in the scriptures is Gehenna. Gehenna is an actual place in Israel. It's south of Jerusalem. We'll talk about it a lot next week when we talk about Jesus, because this is Jesus' favorite term when he's talking about these type of things. Gehenna has a history, a history that involves fire and sacrifice and human suffering. And so it becomes an obvious kind of metaphor for, for judgment, for these kind of things. And it's, again, not always clear that we should just lump all of these different terms into hell and that we should be sure what we think of automatically when we think of the word hell is what they're all trying to get at. Not only are different terms used, but the descriptions vary when it comes to talking about hell. And so this is one of the reasons, even in a traditional viewpoint, you get lots of different beliefs on hell. Is hell an objective place, or is it a subjective state? Like, is hell somewhere you go? Is it a space or a dimension, kind of like as opposed to heaven? Or is hell just an experience, like something that your soul goes through? People differ. There's passages that seem to suggest it's somewhere you get tossed to. There's other passages that seem to suggest it's some kind of spiritual thing that you go through. Is hell hell? Is it punishment because God is not there? Because it's a separation from God and God's presence? Texts seem to imply that. Or is hell hell because God is there? Because he's kind of actively providing the, the suffering or the punishment. For some people... Hell is, is just the love of God wrongly received. So hell is nothing different than God's love. It's just how people experience God's love when they don't reciprocate it. So if all human beings are heading towards a confrontation with the glory of God's love, then those who desire God and long for his love will experience that as ultimate bliss. But those who oppose God and don't want that will experience that as, as torment. I don't know if you've ever been loved by someone you did not love back, right? But it can get icky fast. So is it, is it the same thing, just kind of experienced differently? Some places we're, we're told it's a lake of fire or fiery furnace. In other places, it's, it's a place of outer darkness. Well, which is it? Is there fire and light? 
Is it outer darkness? In some scriptures, it seems to suggest this kind of long, never-ending suffering. In other places, it seems just this kind of quick, destructive ending. All kinds of different descriptions that you find throughout the scriptures. There's even differences about what gets you there. Or what it is that causes one to experience this as opposed to a redemption or salvation or heaven or whatever else you might call the, the more positive version of this. There are passages that suggest it's your deeds. It's what you do. It's how you treat the stranger, the prisoner, and the child. And then there are many passages that say it's about your faith. It's about what you believe. Now, it's very interesting to me that Throughout Christian history, and, and, and I guess I'd never really thought about it, but I, I read it for the first time in the past few weeks studying for the, the series. Um, the church has never officially decided someone's in hell. Now, if you were to read some blog posts, you might think differently, right? I mean, just this morning, I, I ran across a blog that was like, 90% of all human beings are in hell. Like, period. Like, I don't know where the statistic came from. If this was like a double-blind study, I don't know what the parameters were to this, but it it was pretty confident. One out of ten. But but Judas, okay, the guy who betrayed Jesus, if you were to read, again, Dante, Judas is like at the center of hell. But the church has always been very careful to say, we don't know. Who knows? Who can judge his heart? Who knows what what happened afterwards, right? I mean, who, who knows? Hitler, I mean, I mean, just come on, name off the top five list, right, of the people you would think, if anyone's in hell, this person's in hell. The church has never felt they had the authority to say, we know. There's a humility that runs deep through the church, across the entire world and across history when it comes to who goes there and why, and when it comes to what exactly is experienced when judgment comes about. Now, you have three different positions, three primary different views that Christians find themselves holding when it comes to the doctrine of hell. I want to sketch them for you very quickly. And I want to begin by saying all three of these seem to be around at all times. From the very beginning in church history, there's not one, one position. Today, there's, there's not one position. In our church, there's not one position. I know this just because I'm the pastor. All three of these are held pretty firmly by different people in our church. There's diversity about this. Now, there has been one that's been primarily popular. And we have to, we have to be truthful about this, right? And this is the traditional version. You might call it the infernalist version. Sometimes it's called eternal conscious torment, or it's ECT. And this tries to kind of get across the big main aspects of it. The idea is that this person's being tormented, forever, never-ending, and they're conscious for it. It's, it's like a torture chamber. And this is more or less, whether you see the flames as metaphorical or as real, whether you see your body as a physical resurrected one with teeth to gnash, or it's just metaphorical for your soul, something you're experiencing. However you view some of these, these more minor details, it's a place where people or a state where people experience this never-ending torment. And for a lot of people, this raises a lot of questions. There's a question about the degree of justice when it comes to infinite retribution. Like, what human crime could possibly 
be considered justly punished with an infinite punishment, right? I mean, what human beings capable of doing something that bad that would last that long? For some people, they can't imagine God, or the God revealed through Christ, doing this, actively making sure this happened. For some people, they, they can't imagine that the redeemed would have joy knowing that they had loved ones who were going through this for all of eternity. The, the second big kind of category of belief here, we might call annihilationism or conditionalism. And the idea here is that for the wicked, for people who aren't believers and followers of Christ, their eternal fate is not something that's eternal in the sense of never-ending punishment. It's instead eternal in the sense of the punishment lasts forever. And the basic idea here is that you're just destroyed. You cease to exist. God wipes you off of the face of existence. Sometimes God does this actively. We might call that more like the annihilation aspect of it. And other times we, we might say, this is just something God gives to you. It's something you choose. And so conditionalists would say, let's call it conditional immortality because Christians sometimes assume that we're all immortal just by nature of us existing. And the scriptures never make that case. They never say, guess what? As a human being, you are granted life forever, no matter what. No, eternal life is something that's God's and it's something he can give, but something he doesn't have to give. And so perhaps for those who don't believe in Christ, they don't get that immortality. They don't receive that condition. And so they perhaps might suffer or suffer for a short amount of time, but eventually it comes to an end and they just no longer are. And for, for some people, this is a much more faithful reading of text, right? Paul in Romans says the wages of sin is death. He doesn't say the wages of sin is 45 billion years, right, of God torturing you and then on and on and on and on. And then it's, it's death. And, and even if you were to take some of the more popular metaphors for hell, right, like a lake of fire, I've never been in a lake of fire, don't plan on trying it, but we had a little hot tub here, we had some fire going, and I was to jump into this, I would imagine it would hurt, but I would also imagine it would not be unending, right? I mean, what happens when you, what happens in the Old Testament when the people were thrown into the fire furnace, well, it didn't go according to the way it was supposed to go, right? But what was supposed to happen is they were supposed to die, right? I mean, there might be some pain, might be some punishment there, but then eventually you just cease to live. And then there are Christians who kind of go a different direction. This seems to be the most different of the three views. We might call them Christian universalists or evangelical universalists. These are people who believe that God's love is so powerful and Christ's victory so expansive that one day all people will be redeemed. And now this is different than just like a more random generic universalism where everyone just gets to be with God no matter what, right? Christian universalists say, no, 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 it's still exclusive. The only door to God is through Christ. It's just eventually all people end up walking through that door. So they'll all come to redemption. For many Christian universalism, universalists, they'll, they'll ask this question, why is it the Christians assume death is the end point for our ability to repent, for our ability to place our faith in Christ? There is a text in Hebrews, and we'll talk about it in this series, but for universalists, Christian universalists, they'll say this text does not seem very convincing to us. The theology behind it is even more questionable. 
So God desires all of us to be saved, but then something happens when the heartbeat flatlines and the attitude changes completely. Now, no more opportunities for you. So say, maybe there's post-mortem chances. There's lots of things that we're not aware of. There's lots of different possible ways. These are your three big camps. The infernalist ECT, traditional view of hell, annihilationist or conditional immortality, and then Christian universalism. And I want to suggest all three of these are Christian ways to view hell. All three of these have passages of Scripture that support them. If you're a Christian universalism, the question, universalist, the question is not why do you ignore passages of Scripture or downplay them or, or kind of try to justify them to fit your view. The question is how do any of us do that? Because there are texts for all three of them. There are texts that seem to be very clear that it's just destruction. This is the result of one's wickedness and lack of faith. There are other texts that seem to suggest there's something much nastier going on. There's other texts that seem to just know at the end of the day, God will be all in all. And the God who created all things in Christ will redeem all things. No one gets to take a position where they have no texts that are uncomfortable for them. Where they have no passages that, that don't need to really be dug into or explained or, or wrestled with. This is not to say that I think they're all equally valid. I think some are weaker than others. I think some are more dangerous than others. It's simply to suggest this. There's diversity of thought in the Christian world. And I think there's a reason for this. It's because there's diversity in the scriptures, and there's been diversity throughout Christian history. That's why we'd say this is a negotiable belief. This is one where we can wrestle so I think this should help us like take our foot off the brakes a little bit when it comes to like the urgency of making everyone agree and have one definition of hell. People get angry. Hopefully not y'all, but people in my experience get really angry when you start to question their idea about hell. Really angry. And it's always kind of surprised me a little bit. But you, you start to kind of relativize hell. You start to kind of suggest it might not be exactly the, what they, they thought it would be. And, and you come to find out real quickly, it seems kind of like this kind of sacred cow for a lot of Christians. It has to be like this. Or, I mean, here's what, why are we even Christians? I hear that for annihilationists. Well, well then why are we even Christians? I mean, if God's not going to torture me forever, why am I in this thing? For universalists, if, if, if there is no punishment or if that punishment is, is limited and, and eventually we, we get in, why again are, are we following Christ? Why do we pray? Why are there missions? A lot of questions that all of these views um, give us, yet none of them, I think, take us outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. None of the great creeds that unite most of the churches throughout history give us any definitive view on hell. Now, they all say, they claim to confess a belief in judgment, a coming judgment, where God will write out good from wrong. But they never go into the nature of that judgment. If you go to the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, you get eight big sermons, eight proclamations of the gospel. And what you find in the book of Acts is that not one of these eight proclamations mention hell. It's not in there. 
there are some things that are in all of them, some, some characteristics. The story of Jesus, his life, his ministry, the works he did, his death. He, he was dead and buried, fully dead. His resurrection, his ascension, and the truth that now he is Lord and Savior of the entire world. These you'll find in all of them. It's programmatic in all the proclamations and all the gospel presentations. But never once do you find a specific view about hell, and never once do you see the good news of Jesus set up by the bad news of hell. This is because our faith is not in a particular view about hell. Our faith is in a person. I understand what people mean when they ask me this, particularly because I'm aware I can be a little evasive sometimes. Do you believe in hell? I just think that believe word is so heavy for a Christian, right? I mean, I want to reserve that for a handful of things and really want to reserve that for persons. What does it mean to believe in hell? I have no trust in hell, right? I don't plan on hell ever doing anything important for me. As a, as a Christian, you go back to the creeds, you go back to the, the rule of faith of the early church, you go back to these proclamations, these, these, these gospel presentations. My belief is in a person. I believe in God. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. My, my faith is in Christ. It's not in some nuanced, particular version of a doctrine. Christ remains central to our faith. And the moment our faith becomes more hell-centered than it is Christ-centered, we've, we've made a big mistake. Hell is a, is a burning question. But how you've been taught about hell, I'm guaranteeing you, is not the only way that Christians have thought about hell. There are some that are a little bit more repulsive than others, in my opinion. There are some that are more problematic than others, in my opinion. There are some that are a little bit more hopeful than others, in my opinion. C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with this, famously kind of puts hell into the hands of human freedom. Because God is is ultimately a respecter of, of human freedom. So he says hell is a door locked on the inside. It's, it's enslavement that we, we enslave ourselves to. No one's in hell because God won't accept them. They're in hell because they've not accepted God, right? And, and perhaps human beings get to a point where they've said no so often they can't do anything else but say no. For others, hell is, is this very intense, very literal experience of flames. For some Christians, hell is something God chooses for people. It's something that they don't even really have a choice in. They've they've been predestined to to go and to experience this aspect of God's justice. And again, for other Christians, there's this very expansive view of God's love conquering all. Now, we'll we'll start to dive into the nitty-gritty next week. And even at the end of this series, you're not going to have an easy answer. What I like to promise here as, as your pastor, at least what my goal is, 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 uh, is I always want to equip you to read texts better. I want, I want you to be able to handle the, the scriptures more faithfully, feel more comfortable with them. I want you to worship Christ more deeply. I want you to see how beautiful he is, how beautiful his salvation is, have your desire to follow him and know him be increased. And so I'll end this morning by suggesting that whatever hell is, however how helpful that, that word even is for us, 
Hell is not something that stands outside of Christ's lordship, outside of his authority. Hell is not something that is immune to the good news of Jesus. So in the book of Revelation, John gets this, this vision of the resurrected Christ. And it, in chapter 1, um, verse 8 through about 20, you can read it. There are these fantastic descriptions about Christ. He's transfigured in all of his glory in this resurrected body. And, and then we get this phrase from Christ. He says, I have the keys to death and Hades. I have the keys to death and to Hades. And in pagan mythology, Hades had gates, and it was locked so that no one could escape. And in Christian theology, drawing off of this statement and others, there's been this belief that it's speculative, it's kind of confusing, but something happened, something so transformative happened with Christ's victory through his death and resurrection that those gates have been opened. There's someone new in charge. Who has those keys? Who's making those decisions? Who's opening and closing those gates, filling or emptying that place? It's the Galilean with scars on his hands from his crucifixion. It's no one else than him. Who is the one bringing judgment? It's the one who was crucified on a cross, crying out to his father to forgive those who were killing him. Whatever hell is, it's a place, it's a thing, it's a state that even itself has been transformed by Christ. As Christians, hell should not be, no matter how we conceive of it, something that paralyzes us or something that takes our attention off of Christ. If it is, if it has, then we're doing it wrong. Even hell, even Hades, pales in comparison to the vision of the resurrected Christ, to the vision of his victory over all things evil, to the trust that you and I can place in the one who was crucified and who rose again. And as we'll, we'll see, when hell's mentioned in the scriptures, paradoxically, it's often more about the present than it is about the future. When we talk about hell, we want to go into it with kind of a Dante mindset, where we want to talk about, like, what are the actual circles? What, are the, what kind of demons are torturing us? And what's the temperature? And what, what all is happening in there? And the scripture's really not that concerned speculating about the future details. The scripture usually lays out hell as a present decision, as a way of saying, your choices matter. Your life matters. And in front of you right now, there's life and there's destruction. There's Christ and beauty and wholeness and redemption. And then there is a way that is not beautiful and is not whole, that is destructive to you and those around you. And the choice before all of us is will we listen to, will we hear, will we see, will we respond to the Christ who calls us? One of the things that judgment, the passages of judgment teach us is that our life is not a game. Our decisions, they're not some fake chess game. And at the end of things, God's not just going to wipe the board off and set things up the way he wants to as if nothing ever happened. No, it matters. The choices we make now matter. The way we treat our neighbor matters. The way we care for the stranger matters. The way we love the child 
matters. The way we worship matters. The way we preach matters. The way we pray matters. And at every second of every day of every week, the call is to go towards the one, to follow the one who was crucified, who has risen, and who now stands in, in victory. Even Hades, even its keys have been transferred over. For those with fears about hell, I would say run to the risen one. For those with questions about hell, I would say go to the, the risen one. For those wishing to avoid hell, I would say go to the, the risen one. He calls, will we, will we respond?